They're gonna put me in the movies They're gonna make a big star out of me We'll make the film about a man that's sad and lonely And all I gotta do is act naturally Hello, welcome to a Six String Hayride podcast a journey through the world of classic country music with your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. We will be covering all of the great topics in country music, from mama to prison, to dancing, to drinking, to guitar picking, to all the crazy deal with the devil, honky talking stuff you do on Saturday night, and how you try to get it past your Lord on Sunday morning. So climb aboard the cart and let's go. If a man was born and purposefully took the name of the family mule, what kind of man do you think he would be? Would he be a normal 9-to-5 blue-collar worker? Would he even fit into polite society at all? If that man was Alvis Edgar Owens Jr., he would go on to become a legend. Alvis Edgar Buck Owens was a country music superstar. His 21 number one hits pay tribute to his abilities as a recording artist. The fact that he wrote or co-wrote 14 of them showcase his songwriting abilities. He was also one of the pioneers of what would become known as the Bakersfield Sound. All this while building a successful business empire comprised of radio stations, publishing companies, a performance venue, and more. The world will never see another star shine so bright as Buck Owens. Buck is born Alvis Edgar Owens Jr. on August 12, 1929 in Sherman, Texas. At some point around the age of three or so, he announces to the family that he's going to start calling himself Buck, which is the name of their family mule. Buck's already to a point in his life where nobody in the family seems to question this. In 1937, during the Dust Bowl and Great Depression, the family moves to Mesa, Arizona. In the late 40s, while working as a truck driver on a route that takes him through the San Joaquin Valley, Buck first discovers Bakersfield. In 1951, he and his first wife relocate to Bakersfield. Uh, Jim's actually been researching Bakersfield for this episode. So, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about the area? I came here looking for something I couldn't find anywhere a thousand miles of coming Yes, I've worn blisters on my heels Trying to find me something better Here on the streets of Bakersfield So beautiful Bakersfield, California uh, Bakersfield is the ninth biggest city in California It's currently got about 403,000 people it's 100 miles straight north of Los Angeles on the Kern River. Uh, the Kern River area, the, the county where Bakersfield is, is the largest oil-producing region in California. And it, it was really this kind of chase for natural resources that put the area on the map in the first place. Uh, this is one of the spots in California 
along the Kern River here where the gold rush becomes a huge thing, draws a lot of people to the area. The first non-Indigenous person who gets credit for exploring the Kern River and the Bakersfield area is a Spanish priest named Francisco Garces. And in 1776, it's documented that, again, he is given credit as the first non-Indigenous person to explore the area. In 1863, a lawyer and retired colonel from Ohio named Thomas Baker shows up in the area and creates kind of a little rest stop oasis area for people traveling from Los Angeles heading north. And again, if you're 100 miles north of L.A., and we're talking about, you know, when people are traveling in horses and buggies, 100 miles is a good spot for a rest for an oasis. And Thomas Baker, a shrewd businessman, he picks a good spot. He begins to prosper. So he begins settling in this area in 1863. In 1873, the city is incorporated as Bakersfield. So in those first 10 years, Thomas Baker really accomplishes quite a lot from a trail rest stop oasis type thing. In 10 years, he builds up a city that will wind up bearing his name. The growth continues really quickly. And in 1898, Bakersfield gets a full proper railroad stop and because of its location north of L.A. and because it is on a river in terms of commerce and business, the railroad going through, the city really becomes fast growing. It becomes a big deal very quickly. Believe I go down to the city Where the neon lights all shine so bright Well, the nighttime girls are always laughing Movie stars are autographing there There's so much I want to see uh, I do want to touch on the Kern River really quickly before talking about Buck's uh, initial foray into the Bakersfield scene. Uh, Merle Haggard has a song, Kern River, which I really think any of the listeners who are not familiar with that song, go listen to it right now. Pause the episode, go listen to the song. I'll never swim Kern River again. It was there that I met her, it was there that I lost my best friend And now I live in the mountains, I drifted up here with the wind And I may drown in still water, but I'll never swim Kern River again It will explain so much in that song of Merle Haggard's will become clear about the way that people view themselves in that area. I grew up in an oil town, but my gusher never came in. And the river was a boundary where my darling and I used to swim. One night in the moonlight, the swiftness swept her life away. And now I live on Lake Shasta, and Lake Shasta is where I will stay. So Buck has moved into the area, and he starts playing at clubs like the Blackboard, which is a, the happening club at the time. Uh, he becomes a local legend in the area. And at this point in his career, Buck has essentially decided he wants to become the best guitar player in the world. Uh, he decides he wants to become the best session guitar player 
so that he gets more work. I, I would assume Buck decided truck driving wasn't for him, but music certainly is. And I got to say, the music industry comes out on the better part of this one. Uh, it's around here that Buck starts commuting to Hollywood to work on sessions at Capitol Records. Uh, he plays guitar on songs like You Better Not Do That by Tommy Collins. Uh, and on the song that many feel is the first to feature the Bakersfield sound, which is Louisiana Swing by Bud Hobbs. The people always gather round to sing Now making eyes and holding hands She's my woman, I'm her man When we do the Louisiana Swing The work's good and Buck quickly becomes Ken Nelson's main man uh, But Buck wants more He wants to become a recording artist in his own right uh, Somewhere in here, Buck has begun writing songs Both on his own and with others He finally convinces Ken Nelson at Capitol to give him a shot uh, after several attempts at getting Nelson to sign him as a recording artist fall flat, Buck finally succeeds when a local band known as the Farmer Boys stops by Buck's place. Uh, they have an upcoming session, and they're looking for some songs. Uh, of course, Buck does have some songs for them. And upon hearing the quality of his work, Nelson finally decides that it's time to give Buck a shot at his dream. And from this point on, everything changes. I've got a tiger by the tail that's plain to see I won't be much when you get through with me Well, I'm a losing weight and I'm turning mighty pale Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail It's now that we're going to start regularly hearing the Bakersfield sound on record. So, Jim, I know that you're definitely the expert between the two of us on the Bakersfield sound. Uh, I'm familiar with a lot of the artists, but you've got a lot more familiarity with the scene itself. So why don't you tell the listeners about the Bakersfield sound? Over the course of the Hayride episodes, Chris and I have talked a lot about how different periods, different phases in music sort of give rise to the next phase, the next trend, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of a reactionary thing. Um, as much as the mid-60s were the psychedelic era and you had Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper and things like that, by the time you get to 1968, 1969, all of a sudden, it's acoustic guitars and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It's getting to the point where I'm no fun anymore. I am sorry. Neil Young and the Grateful Dead doing their country albums. And In the timbers up in Nario, the walls are running round. A winter was so hot and cold, froze ten feet beneath the ground. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Beatles White Album and things kind of react to the psychedelic era by going back to taking an acoustic guitar and as John Fogarty says you know sitting on the back porch listening to Buck Owens the Bakersfield sound is very much a reaction to uh, that period in the 50s and 60s where Post honky tonk, you have Nashville getting very smooth, very neat and clean and polished. Once Hank Williams is gone, you start to get 
in more singers separate from playing a guitar or, you know, playing their own instrument. And you get this focus on this really kind of lush arrangements. As much as I love Chet Atkins, he was one of the main guys to go off in this direction. It's the one area where I would even dare to disagree with the man. But you get what was eventually referred to as country politan. Out where the bright lights are glowing You're drawn like a moth to a flame You laugh while the wine's overflowing While I sit and whisper your name and as much as in rock music where you get, you know, the country rock is a response to psychedelia, you get punk rock and rockabilly reemerging in the 80s as a response to things like Yes and Genesis and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all that kind of progressive rock stuff. The Bakersfield sound first of all they're way off in california they're not even that near to texas and and the bob wills and the swing influence although that's an element that does emerge the bakersfield sound is very much guitar based especially the fender telecaster times we talked a lot about buck owens and his partner don rich was uh, back when we were doing our telecaster episode you get that element of rockabilly in the bakersfield sound you get a rhythm a, a swing that is a combination of the honky talk the hank williams type style but you also get a lot of the tex-mex the accordion and that kind of swing vibe that Bakersfield, this sound really starts to take off in the mid-1950s. As Chris mentioned, Louisiana Swing is sort of the Rocket 88 of the Bakersfield era. We have Buck Owens on guitar, and even before Don Rich came along, Buck, the guy was a serious, serious guitar picker here. Uh, On piano, we have Bill Woods, and on fiddle, we have Jelly Sanders and Oscar Whittington. Let's go down to Louisiana and smell the sweet magnolias in the spring. Creole babies, nice and sweet, dancing to the bio beat when they do the Louisiana swing. Now, bio babies running wild, stealing kisses all the while, and up bug bites everyone in spring. Glowworms glowing in the dark, couples necking in the park when they do the Louisiana swing. All Billy Woods from Bakersfield, yeah. And again, this is 1954, the Louisiana Swing. And aside from the musical characteristics that we've been laying out here, the other thing that was unique to the Bakersfield scene, and I think this is still that Gene Autry and the, the Patsy Montana type influence, is the outfits, the clothes really matter. When you see pictures of Buck Owens and Don Rich and the Buckaroo Band, they're uh, way back when we were talking top 20 albums here, I described Owens as a sparkly hit machine. And I'm going to stick with that because those guys in those outfits through that era, just fantastic. 
the first person to really initiate that in the Bakersfield era, and this is why I think it kind of goes back to a Patsy Montana influence, is Rose Maddox and the music that she does with her brothers, the Maddox brothers. Good morning, Captain. Howdy, gal. Good morning, Sean. I'm a Do you need another milk dinner? Hot on you, you mudlar. I sure do. The outfits, the Western-themed outfits, were just as much a big part of it as anything else in their presentation. And Rose herself, aside from being a fantastic singer, was a, a real and a thoughtful business person in that aspect of the music business. Uh, also, early in the Bakersfield era, we get Wynn Stewart, who goes on to have a pretty amazing career. In 1951, that's when Buck Owen shows up in Bakersfield. And it's 1960 when he finally convinces Don Ridge to stay in the area and for them to actively work together and collaborate. And it, they have an amazing run giving this Bakersfield sound and style to the rest of the country, to the rest of the world. There's a place down the street we call Sam's Place It starts a-jumping every evening when the sun goes down You can always find me down at Sam's Place For that's where the gang all hangs around You get the kind of twangy, hard-hitting, rockabilly-style guitar you get this amazing sort of honky-tonk shuffle rhythm going on underneath that. And Buck is really clever in the songwriting. He sort of develops this character, and, and he really expands on this when he gets to Hee Haw later on in television. But he sort of creates this character of kind of a lovable goofball. Hey, you don't know me, but you don't like me. so through the mid-60s the bakersfield dial that sound gets a huge representation around the world because in 1966 Buck Owens and his band crank out one of the iconic live recordings of any type of music with the Carnegie Hall album. And then in 1968, they performed for President Lyndon Johnson, and that is another live album release. And then in 1969, it's Buck Owens live in London. So not only is he spreading his take on Western music around the world, but as a business, he's really the guy who's out there front and center creating a, a market for live concert recordings as album releases. And to do that, you really have to assemble a technical crew, a production crew that through the 1960s, recording big musical concerts in hockey arenas and larger theaters and that sort of thing as this part of the business was developing, nobody really knew how to do that. 
and Buck Owens and Don Rich and the people that they put around them managed to, you know, if we're going to put out a live album every year through the late 60s, we better figure out exactly how to do this. And, and that is one of the real pioneering uh, things that comes out of the Bakersfield era in terms of recording technique and technology to be able to, to mic a fairly large theater for an album release. So let's have a big warm London Palladium country style welcome for the world's number one country artist. Ladies and gentlemen, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. And uh, they they really pull that off. Those Buck Owens live albums through the late 60s are fantastic. Kind of the legacy of the Bakersfield era of that style, of that sound, um, in terms of Buck Owens, it's mostly landed in the very competent hands of Dwight Yoakam, who starts to become a big deal as a recording artist in the mid to late 80s. Well, I'm a honky-tonk man Ain't a crazy style Love to give the girls a world To the music of an old goodbye When my money's all gone I'm on the telephone Singing, hey, hey, mama Can your daddy come home? And it's really becomes a teacher-student relationship. Uh, they work together, they record together, they appear, you know, publicly perform together, and Buck really kind of passes the torch to Dwight Yoakam in that way. Uh, again, we get Dwight Yoakam, but we also see folks like Emmy Lou Harris and John Fogarty being really heavily influenced by the Bakersfield style. Uh, John Fogarty, certainly, if you listen to that guitar sound of his. You know, you really hear a lot of what Don Rich and Buck Owens were doing in that twang, in that tone, in those kind of sharp little melodic bits that really become the hook in a song that you remember. People still talk about it. People are still influenced by it. And for damn sure, you can still see the sparkle coming off of those outfits that they were wearing back then. And you can hear those Telecasters. Uh, this was a real essential ingredient in Western music for a long time, and no one is going to forget it anytime soon. Yeah, Jim, you mentioned uh, the Live at Carnegie Hall album and the Live at London album from that run of uh, live records that the Buckaroos did in the late 60s. And there's a couple of others that I really think fans should be aware of if they're not. Uh, one of them is Live in Scandinavia, and the other is Live in Japan. The Live in Scandinavia album, you really, it's very difficult to find a copy of that anymore. But one of the most beautiful things about the modern era and that we, you know, in which we live is that you can go find these things online. So, for example, if somebody has Amazon Music Unlimited, you can find not only the Live in Scandinavia album, but kind of like they re released those legacy editions of the at San Quentin and at Folsom records for Johnny cash. There is a release uh, over the past few years on the streaming services that has the live at Scandinavia album in its entirety, meaning all of the performers from that day. So you'll get to hear Don rich lead the buckaroos in a few songs before hearing a couple of more opening acts and then getting on to buck set. So there's some really nice treats that we're able to hear in the modern era, which when we were growing up, you just really couldn't access unless you happen to know somebody lucky enough to 
have a copy of the album, which was not that common. Uh, also, I mentioned in the intro to the episode that of his 21 number one hits, Buck wrote or co-wrote 14 of them. So his songwriting abilities, you know, again, there's no question that he's one of the greats here. But I do want to touch on Buck the performer. I don't think he has that great of a voice. Uh, I would compare him to someone like a Keith Richards. He gets the job done. He definitely has a very unique style that conveys the emotion he's trying to convey. But I don't really think Buck is nearly as great at singing as he is at playing and writing and for that matter, producing. Um, but I don't think that really has any sort of negative impact on my enjoyment of his body of work. I, I do enjoy the songs. I do enjoy the fact that they hold up pretty well to this day in mind. I think Buck Owens, the singer is very much in, in terms of country music it's kind of like the Ernest Tubb thing in Nashville. You have a guy who a lot of charisma, great songs, great backing band, great personality as a, a guy who's out in front of the band, but both men, by their own admission, not Roy Orbison, not George Jones. I mean, there, there's a limit to their range, but you can't turn away from them either there's just something that is that captivating uh, again it, the overall talent and skill as an entertainer uh, it's common for guitar players to make fun of their lead singers uh, especially in the keith richards Mick Jagger dynamic but to get up there in front of a crowd and the hello Cleveland, how you doing? Thanks for coming and to belt out all the songs, whether you're always on key or not, that is a damn hard job. And few people really do it at the level that Owens did. And, and that's without the really, you know, powerhouse voice. He's just kind of one of those total package type entertainers. So after writing this giant wave of a career for the better part of 15 years on July 17th, 1974, everything changes again with the death of Don Rich in a motorcycle accident. You know, there's several people who have appeared on Hee Haw over the years who are not with us anymore. And one who's particularly dear to me was a fellow who played the lead guitar. He sang harmony with me for 15 years and he was a big part of all my songs. Don Rich, and here are some of those songs. They're gonna put me in the movies. They're gonna make a big star out of me. We will make a film about a man that's sad and lonely. And all I gotta do is act naturally. Well, I bet you I'm gonna be a big star. You can't ever tell Who is it gonna make me a big star Cause I can play the part so well Well, I hope you'll come to see me in my movie And I know that you're gonna plainly see The biggest fool ever hit the big time All I gotta do is act naturally in the late 80s, Buck does have a bit of a comeback. Uh, he gets hot again after duetting with Dwight Yoakam on Streets of Bakersfield. Hey, you don't know me, but you don't like me. Say you care less how I feel. But how many of you that sitting just me ever walk the streets of Bakersfield? Just me. Walk the streets, 
Now, while Buck's own career as a recording artist has come to an end by 1992, he does still guest on the occasional track with other artists. So, on March 24th, 2006, Buck isn't feeling great, but he does play a show at his Crystal Palace nightclub in Bakersfield. Afterwards, he goes home and sometime after midnight, he dies in his sleep. He's still loved by fans, many of whom weren't even alive at the time that he was. Oh, the sun's gonna shine in my life once more. Love's gonna live here again. Things are gonna be the way they were before. Love's gonna live here again. Well, folks, we've talked a lot about Buck Owens, you know, being an eccentric farm kid who wants to name himself after the mule, all the way through an extraordinary music career. It's very easy for people. Uh, outside of Western music to sort of dismiss Buck Owens as the smiley guy from Hee Haw and the sparkly outfits and the red, white, and blue guitar and things that on the surface don't suggest a lot of substance. But for all of the man's sense of style, uh, the outfits, the, the style of the kind of entertainer he was, Buck Owens is a guy that when you really go through the list, the things that he pioneered in the music business and the legacy, the accomplishments that he leaves behind, this is an impressive guy with a, a truly impressive list of accomplishments. He helps to pioneer uh, a sound, a style, a manner of Western music that becomes, you know, so amazing that it takes on its own name, the Bakersfield Sound. He is, like with Rose Maddox and, and going back to, you know, Gene Autry, Buck Owens is one of the first guys in the 60s when we get into color, color TV and big colored breads and magazines and things with the fashion, with the outfits, with the way that the band, the Buckaroos, presents itself. And then we get the run through the mid to late 60s of the live albums, something that no musician had done prior to that. And then we get the incredible virtuoso double guitar approach between Buck and, and Don Rich and those amazing Fender Telecasters. You have a style between the two of them where there's really not a lot of strumming. It's a lot of kind of single note lines and just straight honky-tonk rhythm. And, and then we get Buck Owens, who does this extraordinary thing that, again, he is one of the first big musical stars to do this. Uh, you know, Elvis, starting in the late 50s, crosses over into the movies, but at the of his musical development there is a real lack of quality of depth of interest in a lot of the movie songs that elvis makes through the 60s that drives him to make a strong comeback in 1968 to live performance but buck owens is really the first big hit radio type musician who crosses over into television consistently and for years at a time the mid to late 60s he's doing tv appearances he has a show under his own name and then in 1969 hee comes out on television is kind of a response to the more uh intellectual liberal big city type humor of Rowan and martin's laughing and of the smothers brothers and hee-haw it kind of comes out and presents itself as sort of the the opposite of that which is odd because we're we're given hee-haw something that represents rural humor southern humor and it is created by two 
Canadian TV writers named Papiat and Aylesworth. Uh, these are the guys that create the program. And they're really, really clever in the way that they structure Kiva. When I was a little kid, I used to see the show all the time through the 70s, and it seemed like the jokes were just dumb and cheap and ridiculous. And the outfits and the kind of joke stereotypes about Southerners. But then in between all that, Hee-haw had musicians and musical quality and performances that were right up there and, and really in a lot of cases better than other things you would see you know, on a variety show of that era. Certainly, they were blown away the music on Lawrence Welk, which was their main competition at this time, uh, by leaps and bounds. Hee-haw has musicianship and performances that are more on the level of uh, what you saw Don Cornelius do out of Chicago with Soul Train, where there was a little bit of comedy, but there's really a focus on who's the band that's showing up that week. And these two Canadian TV writers, when they put together Hee Haw, they wanted Buck Owens because here's a guy with a lot of hit singles who has a wardrobe. He looks good in it. He's a fashionable guy. And, you know, like Chris had been discussing, Owens is not the best singer, but he's an incredible total package showman. And those sparkly outfits and that red, white, and blue guitar and that charisma that he had made him perfect as part of a, a duo for a variety show. Now, of course, the other side of the coin on that has to be somebody who can do musical comedy, but who is a virtuoso musician. And that's where Roy Clark comes into Buck Owens' life. with Don Rich passing away, you know, in the early 70s, you have Owens move from more of a recording and, you know, writing songs and actively creating new music part of his career. You have him branching off into TV now, where his personality and ability as a showman really takes over. Um, it's hard not to notice that part of this Buck Owens total package entertainer always means that there has been an extraordinary guitar player at his side, whether it be Don Rich or then Roy Clark. The band on the original lineup for Hee Haw, the house band, was Boots Randolph on the saxophone, Floyd Kramer on the piano, Johnny Gimble on the fiddle, Jethro Burns on mandolin, and Willie Ackerman on the drums. Again, the people that put together this show do not judge it just by the cornball outfits and the cornball jokes. Really watch Hee Haw for the musicians because it, it, what they presented, I think a lot of that stuff just kind of snuck in under the radar because you thought about 
the cute girls in the farmer's daughter outfits and you thought about the goofy jokes that maybe were a little bit dirty if you figured it out but there was just always solid solid music performances on this show buck owens is with hee-haw from 1969 to 1986 hee-haw itself winds down in 1992 they do a year or two of showing clips of old shows with Roy Clark doing introductions. Uh, but really, by that time, the show had run its course. So from 1969 to 1986, we have, and that's a really nice long run, we have Buck Owens, you know, the TV star. And again, you know, when you scratch under the surface of that, you see the songwriter, the guitar player, and he was a really good drummer, too. Uh, this is a guy who just knew his business and whether it be in the recording studio with the hit singles or on stage with the live albums or this nice run through the seventies uh, with television, I, you know, short of Buck Owens didn't write murder mystery novels. I don't think there's a part of the entertainment world that this guy did not uh, engage in and at a very high level. So Buck Owens starts to buy up radio stations in Southern California and in the Phoenix area. And he gets to the point, he leaves Hee Haw in 1986. And in the late 80s, as Chris pointed out, he gets that recognition from a young Dwight Yoakam and they start to appear together. And, and Buck gets a little boost out of that. In 1998, he sells the majority of his interest in his radio stations in the Bakersfield area and in the Phoenix, Arizona area to Disney for $8 million. So Disney has a habit of buying up anything quality in the entertainment world. They come to Buck Owens and yeah, he gives up controlling interest in his radio stations to Disney for $8 million. The other thing that Owens does that you really see the influence of Gene Autry is Autry had the Melody Ranch, and that was where he did his radio show. He did live performances, uh, any kind of marketing or promotional films that he did. It was always, here's Gene Autry at the Melody Ranch. In um, 1996, Buck Owens puts up the money and the you know, the willpower to, to see it through and opens up the Crystal Palace. And the Crystal Palace in Bakersfield, it's a cultural museum for the area. It's a musical museum for the area, but they also have food and a live music entertainment space. And it's really the last 10 years of Owen's career that he's kind of staying close to home and playing at his own place. And as Chris said, uh, it's something that a lot of musicians claim they wish would happen to them at the end of their run. But Buck Owens gets to be pretty good old age, has dinner, plays a concert at his own you know home venue, and then he goes into the house, falls asleep, and that's it. He passes away. Um, an extraordinary list of accomplishments. He really took the influences, you know, that came before him, certainly in the, the fashion and the business model part of the music business. And what he created, you know, through the 60s and 70s, it, it's going to be near impossible for anybody to duplicate that. You know, we, we have, again, a sense of fashion and style of music and guitar picking that defines a regional area and the time that it comes from. And then the ownership of the radio stations, the becoming a master not only of hit singles and the live concert stage, but then to rule television for over a dozen years. Uh, it's a lot to appreciate. The man did a lot of work. The man did a lot of huge quality work. Uh, it, again, we just, you got to love him. He is the sparkly hit machine. He's Buck Owens, and I don't think we're going to see another like him. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and you want more. Come, Mr. 
Tata Taliman, Talimi Banana. Well, folks, you've gotten yourself through all the winter holidays. You deserve some dessert. It is Mother Owen's Banana Pudding. For this one, you will need the following. One cup of sugar, three tablespoons of flour, a half a teaspoon of salt, two eggs, two and a half cups of milk, two teaspoons of vanilla, one small box of vanilla wafers, and four large bananas sliced. Combine sugar, flour, and salt. Add eggs to milk and mix. Add to sugar, flour, salt mixture and blend. Cook over medium heat, stirring constantly until thickened. Add vanilla and remove from heat. Line the bottom of the bowl or pan with vanilla wafers, then a layer of sliced bananas over the wafers. Put part of the cooked custard over the layers. Repeat another set of layers of wafers and banana, ending with custard mixture. Sprinkle with wafer crumbs. Refrigerate until well chilled. Apparently mother liked to make this one uh, when they were all living in Texas. Oh, my heart skips a beat when we walk down the street. I feel a trembling in my knees. And just to know you're mine until the end of time makes my heart skip a beat. I'd like to remind you to email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. Six is spelled out. You can also search us uh, on Facebook as Six String Hayride. Or what we'd really appreciate you doing is finding us on Patreon under Six String Hayride as well. Well, folks, thanks again for joining your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley on the Six String Hayride Classic Country Podcast. We are here for all of your classic country, rockabilly, early rock and roll, little gospel, little blues, a lot of excellent country music themed recipes. And basically we are here to keep your musical circle rocking, bopping, and very much unbroken. So thank you for sticking with us. We will see you down the road real soon. And again, whether it's in your home, in your community, wherever it is you do your thing, Keep your circle unbroken. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you real soon. Oh, can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. One of these days, and it won't be long, I'll rejoin them in a song. I'm going to join the family circle at the throne. No, the circle won't be broken by and by, Lord, by and by. Remember, the force will be with you always.